So a story is told about a guy who Sunday morning approaches, he's laying in bed, and his mom calls up the stairs. This sounds like my childhood. It's not, but it sounds like it. His mom yells up the stairs and says, it's time to go to church, get up. And he grunts, you know, rolls over, puts the pillow over the, his head, and, you know, just kind of goes back under the covers. Waits 10 minutes, basically the snooze button is pushed, you know, and the mom yells back up the stairs, we're going to be late, let's get going to church. And he yells down, I don't want to go. She waits a few more minutes thinking he'll uh, probably, you know, get a little, get a little re- perspective, change his frame of reference, something will alter in his brain and he'll get up. Ten minutes later, she yells up the stairs, we are absolutely going to miss the service. You've got to get out of bed. And he says, I don't want to go. I just, I'm sick of it. it. I'm tired. Church is dry. It's not fun. It's not a great experience for me. I'm not energized in our church anymore. I just want to stay here today, Mom. And she says, you got to get up. You're the pastor. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about a topic that I think it's off of the beaten trail for us. We're talking through a series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Tim's away at another Netzer church this morning, and so I'm sharing with you. But I actually felt like we need to, to break our series. And because of some of the things I've experienced uh, personally, and because of some of the things I've heard other people around Parker Ford Church share with me, I want to break and talk about a specific topic. And the topic is on Mother's Day, and this is just a brilliant idea, putting mothers together with shame. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about. Now, I'm not going to shame you. I don't want to beat you up this morning. I actually really want you to go away feeling the presence of the Lord, and uh, I think you'll understand what I mean as we progress. I want to tell you another story, and I actually asked permission from my daughter to tell you this story. We had to have an agreement. It's so sensitive. It's part of our family's legendary history, Uh, and it happened three years ago. I came home to North Evans Street where I live, and I was uh, walking into the house, and it was nap time, which is a great time of day. I love it when my kids are asleep. You know, they're, they're cutest when they're asleep. They're not talking back to me and all that. And so I walked into the house, and even Shelby, I think, was asleep. And I walked upstairs, and I walked into the restroom, and lo and behold, there was a flood all across our uh, main restroom. And I, I mean, you know, been gone all day, and all of a sudden I walk into this. It wasn't my brightest moment. And I I looked around, and I started to clean up, and I looked for incriminating evidence leading me to look for who might possibly have been involved in this catastrophe. And I noticed uh, 3T pants. For those of you who aren't parents or who haven't had kids recently, that is size 3, and it usually goes with the age. That means I'm looking for Maggie, my middle daughter. And the pants were pink, which was another tell. And so the whole lower half of her set of clothing was actually in there. There were some socks, pants, and other things. And I realized I'm looking for Maggie. So I got the disinfectant out. I got the rags. I cleaned the whole thing up. And uh, then I decided, well, I better find this child. And I went to her bedroom. And, of course, you know, her bed is piled high with stuffed animals and sleeping bags and covers. And I started to kind of pad down through there looking for somebody who was Maggie's shape. And there was nobody there. I picked up her sleeping bag, and I'm dropping stuffed animals out of the bottom of the sleeping bag. No Maggie. I look up in Sophie's bed. Sophie's there by herself. I look in the closet. I end up going behind the toy boxes that are underneath the bunk beds. I'm now crawling. This would have been humiliating if you could have seen it. But I'm crawling underneath their bed looking for Maggie still not there. 
And I'm thinking she's got to feel pretty bad about herself. Whatever happened, she had this kind of sense that something wrong has occurred. Where does Maggie go when she feels like she's done something wrong? She didn't actually get Shelby, the leader in charge. She didn't actually go deal with it appropriately. Where would she go? So I looked through the house, the kitchen, the dining room, the living room, the extra bedroom, anywhere I could think of. And I started, I mean, my mind is going, you know, running all over the place. Did she run away from home at three years old? You know, should I be calling the police? Where would Maggie have gone? Finally, I decided, well, I better change my clothes. I think it was coming from something where I was kind of dressed up. And I I went to my bedroom, and there she was. And I could see her. And she wasn't just in our bed or on our floor. She was actually on my pillow. And she was curled up with this pillow, and she was clinging to it. You know, where do we go when we feel like we've done something wrong? What do we do? It says a lot about us, what we do. In the moment when we know we failed, everybody in this room has failed. You know, Romans, the St. Paul, Apostle Paul tells us uh, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Maggie didn't quite come short of God's glory in this moment so much as she probably felt like she came short of my personal, I don't know if we'd call it glory, but my expectations. She flooded a part of our house and she decided she wanted me, but not enough to go find her mom or me. She actually decided what she wanted was just the remembrance of me. She actually went and found my pillow and she clung to it. And she sat there in her shame going, I don't want my dad to find out, but the person I most need on this planet is my dad. This is what we kind of are like when we fail. This is what I'm like. I want God, but I don't want all of God. And I don't want him to tell me the truth about me. I'm really afraid of what he might say. And on top of that comes this gigantic feeling that I suspect is not actually from God. In fact, I know it's not. This shame, this guilt, this thing that paralyzes me and says, I'm not going to take the right steps. Maggie didn't do the right thing in this moment. And neither do we. We tend to hide, to cover up, to move on, to just kind of squelch down within us whatever we've done wrong. And instead of facing it, we decide the shame is too much and we're going to kind of put ourselves away. You know, the thing is, that becomes a very difficult place for God to speak into. We end up feeling more than God ever intended for us to feel. We hear words that God never speaks. You know, God, when he talks to us about what we've done wrong, he has a way of transforming and altering our lives. He offers us grace to make change. But what we feel is this paralysis of guilt and shame. We just feel like we're bad people, and so there's no way to move forward. And so we go and we hide, and we think about God, and we wish for God, but we kind of think, you know what, we, that, that ship sailed. We're, pa- we're past God. First John, the Apostle John, at the end of his life, writes some interesting words for people in our circumstance. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. In short order, there are multiple spirits on this planet. One of them is the spirit of God, ever-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. God, that's great. But then there's all this other stuff out there. And John says, you know, you really got to be careful because what you might be hearing in moments like these when you actually have something to be worried about might not actually be the living God talking. In fact, it might be something else. It might be some other spirits. And we're supposed to test the spirits. And the primary way to know whether something that's speaking to you is actually of God or not 
is whether the lordship of Jesus is actually at the center of what they're saying. So let me tell you that I believe, and I'm going to offer you this line, that shame isn't part of the lordship of Christ at all. In fact, shame removes the lordship of Jesus from our lives by removing the connection with God in the midst of conviction from God. So we do something wrong, and the shame takes us out of the connection, out of the presence of the Lord, out of the ability to deal with what's going on, and it moves us into this other place in our life where we can't take effective action. Tragic. Wouldn't you call that tragic? A lot of times, people in church tend to think shame is just kind of indigenous. I mean, we all have sin and come short of the glory of God. God is righteous. We're down here, he's up there, and we feel this distance between us. And when we feel that distance, we kind of go, you know, how can we get past that? There's nothing there. I mean, we have broken the rule of God. We have been damaged. And I believe it's because Satan comes along, and he just starts whispering. I'm going to name it what it is. And he starts telling you, you're not that good. God can't forgive this. You're not in a place where he will use you. You're done. It's over. You got to move on with your life. Make the best of it you can. But what God's big plan for you is, is is somehow gone missing in this moment of failure. And it's just not true. The Bible tells us a lot of things about failure. Most people, it seems, have failed in the scriptures, and we're going to talk through some of them. We're going to talk through, not 1 Corinthians, where we've been studying, but we're actually going to talk about 2 Corinthians. Before we do, I want to tell you a story. I was reading a couple months ago in my Bible, where good stories are found, and I was in 2 Samuel 10 and 11, and I realized, again, something that's interesting. I'm not going to read this, but I'm just going to paraphrase the story. You've probably heard it. King David, who's one of the greatest heroes in the Old Testament, is up on his rooftop. And it's the cool of the day, and he is a man just constantly troubled by the, the difficulties of being a leader. You know, he's the king, and he's responsible for everything else. And as he's up on top of his, his roof, we can just guess that he's resting, and yet his eyes rest on something probably they shouldn't have seen a woman down the way who's bathing. And he doesn't just notice, he starts to take it in. And what's more is he starts to use his power and he sends a messenger and she comes to the palace. And that night, a story that's often told, they parented a child together. Well, that doesn't sound like such a big deal except for she had a husband and he... You know, it's really wonderful to have Alex with us and now we know he's here. Jen, don't feel bad at all. Um... Where were we? We were talking about King David, and he decides he's got to cover it up because this woman named Bathsheba actually has a husband, and this husband is probably going to wonder what in the world's going on because he was actually out of town when the deed occurred. And so he decides through this whole litany of different conspiracies to do different things that covered up, culminating in her husband being killed. And he actually compounds the sin of adultery with the sin of murder. Now, does anybody want to confess this morning and just say that, yes, you have murdered somebody? I'm not going to ask about adultery because, honestly, you know, murder is like a little bit safer. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Murder is, nobody's confessing. Okay, good. But King David murdered somebody. That's what he did. And then he covered it up. He married the woman. He moved on. They actually had a baby. And then comes along a prophet. His name is Nathan, and he starts to tell a story about a little sheep and a guy who has this little sheep, and he's taken advantage of, and and he leads David down this primrose trail of a fable, a story, and David gets just absolutely angry about the unrighteousness done to this man who actually has the sheep stolen and killed. And at the end of the whole story, Nathan looks at David and says, you are that man. 
you stole that sheep. You stole it from this guy named Uriah who you've now had murdered. And it goes on and on and on. And then God says, you've got to pay. And it's not because it's just you've got to pay. It's this sort of sin has consequences. And the consequences, I can't take away as a pastor. I don't think any priest can speak Latin over these sorts of things. It's actually God. He holds in his hand the measurements, the righteousness, the mercy, the grace, all of these words that we throw around. They're actually sitting there in his hands. And he says, you know what? We need to not just allow this to move on. There's going to be consequences. And the consequences are that this child is going to die. Oh, no. David just thunderstruck. He's willing to die instead of letting this little boy die. He throws himself on the ground, changes his clothes, puts on sackcloth, covers his head in ashes, which is just absolute humiliation for a king. And he goes into this grieving mode for over a week. And the servants gather around him. They can't get him to eat. They're afraid he might kill himself by starving himself to death. And they're gathered around him. And in, I think it's the eighth day the little boy dies. And the servants say to themselves, what will happen if we tell King David his son has actually died now? What if we tell him that the results of his sin have actually culminated in another person, not just the first person, this woman's husband dying, now there's a little baby who's died because of his sin. What if we tell him what what will happen next? And he hears them whispering, and like a good king, he has this discernment. He says, okay, the baby died. He gets up. He worships God. He puts clothes on. He actually goes to the temple and he eats and he he praises the Lord and his servants just stop and they go, what in the world is with you? I mean, all the time this boy is sick, you're grieving and you you can't be consoled. There's no comfort for you. And now, the opposite. He passes away and you're not even going to grieve. Now your clothes come back on. Now your food is at the table. Now you're in the temple worshiping again. What gives with this? And David says, well, I thought maybe I'd change God's mind. And you realize that, and it hit me personally like a ton of bricks, because let me stop and just give you an autobiographical moment into my internal life. When I know I've failed, I am just absolutely shamed by that personally. I look inside myself and I realize there are these things that I'm not okay with and I don't always know they exist. And once I do them, I realize that I've done something wrong. God kind of brings it to my attention, maybe through a reading or a friend or Most often, Shelby, she notices. And I see these things inside myself, and I just think, how could I have not seen this? Why would I have failed so badly? What in the world about me has, you know, got this character flaw that would create this issue? But that's not how David handles it at all. He doesn't devolve into a a blob of spineless amoebaness. I think I just made up a word. He actually says, you know what, I'm going to try to change God's mind. And all the way through it, he stays connected to God. And when he's grieving on the ground, you realize he's still connected to God. That's a form of prayer. And when the boy dies, he says, well, I'm going to stay connected through God through this. I'm going to walk with God through whatever it is. And when he says this is justice, I'm going to believe it. But whatever is going to happen, I'm not going to be shamed into thinking my connection with God is torn apart. It hit me like a ton of bricks when I read this story. I've read it. Hundreds of times. I've heard it preached on, I don't know how many times. And yet it never struck me that often what happens between me and God, the worst sin, is not the sin that I originally committed at all. That's actually the secondary sin compared to how I handle my failure. And when I handle my failure in distance from God, when I go and I hide out on my dad's pillow, but when I actually talk with him, something bad emerges in my soul. I lose the ability to actually take him with me and get empowered to change. I need him, and I'm not using God the way he's asked me to use him. 
I'm not actually walking with God through this difficulty. The letter to the Corinthians, Tim mentioned that when he said he was going to do this series, I told him, if you were here a few weeks ago, he actually said this from the pulpit. He said, Josh asked me, and I did, if I'm going to share all of the real stories of 1 Corinthians because they're nasty. For instance, the Corinthian church had a habit of getting drunk on communion wine. Can you imagine you show up at a communion service and people are like they're dancing with lampshades on their head, you know? I mean, this might be me making some of it up, but that's actually true. There was a guy in this church, and cover your ears if you're not, you know, that little parental advisory that comes on before certain television shows. There was a guy in this church that actually was having an affair with his dad's wife. And Paul says something like, are you kidding me? You know, there are pagan Corinthians. There are people who worship false gods who look at the Christian church and say, these are the least moral people among us. They're crazy. And the letter of 1 Corinthians is actually written to correct that and a few other things that I'm not even going to list. There's one worse that Paul goes into. He's actually beating up a church and saying, you guys have gone wrong. But in the letter to 2 Corinthians, he writes differently. And we're going to read from 2 Corinthians 7 now. It says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I worried that my letter was going to beat you up too much. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. You know, that when we sin, that's the word we need, right? We need that word repentance because repentance actually causes us to see our failure Look at God in the moment, see how big it is and how small it is to rightly proportion it and then to move on, to leave it behind, to say we're sorry and say, God, you take it, to apologize to the people we've damaged and to move on in his grace. This word repentance is what Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians 2 because he was hoping that this church would repent. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no lingering feeling of regret and shame and all of those things. But worldly sorrow brings death. I don't know how many times I've been sitting in a counseling session and I won't tell anybody's names, but I don't know how many times I've been sitting in a counseling session with somebody and had them share this thing that they just can't get past. Now, we'll talk about where they've been with God. Have they confessed it? Have they worked it through? Absolutely. But the ungodly sorrow, the shame, the regret, the worry, the guilt, it's crushing their souls, and it's actually leading to something else. It's leading to death. And my theory is that those are words that God spoke that got co-opted by the enemy. God says you need to change. God says we need to alter our lives. God we need, says we need to give ourselves to him in some way. And what the enemy says is, and why didn't you do that already? Why did it take you so long to notice that you have this character flaw? Why are you one of those idiots, like so many people you've castigated and condemned yourself, who failed in this way? You know, that's the enemy talking. And it's ungodly sorrow, and it's ungodly shame, and it actually paralyzes us and keeps us from what God is calling us to. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So what do we do? If somebody fails, Paul says, I still got to call you on it. I got to tell you, you failed God. But then when they failed God, and they were made aware of it, 
this Corinthian church actually stepped so into it that they would not stop grieving. In fact, that guy who sinned with his dad's wife, a sin that's just, that's strange, right? I mean, honestly, when you hear a pastor say this, like, really? Somebody slept with their dad's wife. It's, there's questions we want to ask. I don't want to answer them right now, okay? They're just, that's just a bad, messed up thing. But he actually says, I did it wrong, I'm sorry. And the Corinthian church doesn't let him back in. They actually keep him out. And the letter of 2 Corinthians is written to say, hey, that guy who you kicked out of church because he was doing something so horrible that even pagans wouldn't even, you know, the, the people around us wouldn't think it was cool. Well, that guy has repented. Why aren't you letting him back in? There's forgiveness for that. You're hanging this regret over his head. You're hanging this shame over his head. You're beating him up with it. And God's not getting anywhere in his life because you're actually damaging him further. For those of us who have sinned, now, if you haven't sinned here this morning, just you can check out now, okay? But for those of us who have sinned, and for those of us maybe who have some deep, dark past sin, some moment of failure that we really know and our spiritual lives kind of center around and we think about too much and others hang over our heads passively if they know about it, this is a fabulous passage. What it tells us is we don't need to be sorry for things that God has already forgiven. There's a question about forgiveness, and that's all about repentance, right? But after we get past repentance, actually, we, after we've turned and moved on, and after we've taken it up with God, the question is, will we sink further into this paralyzed shame, or will we move on? And Paul says, let's rejoice. God's forgiveness is enough for this and for anything. God's forgiveness extends so far. We need to praise him. We need to worship him. There's a reason why we don't do this, and it's because we have an enemy. You know, pastors don't like to talk about this. We did this ministry called Alpha last year, and the guy who gave the talks, his name's Nicky Gumbel. He's a pastor in London, and he talks in this cool British accent. I really appreciate that. I wish I, I just have asked God why I wasn't born in London, but that's neither here nor there. And, and he talks in this cool uh, British accent, and as he's talking in this accent, he's saying these words, and he says, you know, it was really hard for me to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but I got to the place where I couldn't deny it. I saw the power of God, and I realized, wow, this Jesus is alive. He's doing great things. What an amazing God we have. And then the church that I was learning from, they told me, you have to believe in Satan too. And he said, no, come on. I have to believe in the resurrection of a dead guy, and that's tough enough, and now i got to believe in a real enemy like this. Does he have horns, and is he red and have a forked tail? And he had a, it was great. I mean, you know, when he asked these questions, they really are honest questions, right? But the Bible treats Satan like he's real. Satan is actually a Hebrew word that just means enemy. It's an adversary. If you came up and hit me in the face, the Hebrew word for you would be Satan. So the Bible talks about this enemy, and he tells, it tells us a few things about him. In John 8, it says he's a liar and the father of lies. This is Jesus himself speaking, and he's talking about, among other things, the religious establishment of his day. And he says, you know what? Satan has lied to the pastors of the Jewish culture, and he has lied to the point where you guys are making disciples. You're traveling all over the world, and what you're doing is heaping guilt on more people. And you're making their lives worse, and they would be better if you never evangelized them, if you never told them the truth about anything, because your truth is worse than the worst lies. Because you've listened to Satan. Remember First John telling us that we're supposed to test the spirits and find out if they're actually putting Jesus in the lordship position in our lives. This passage asks us to question whether what we're hearing is actually lies and maybe it's not the truth at all. Shame is about 
us feeling, the lies of Satan in our lives, and they have just a kernel of the truth like a really good story. He finds some absolute certain thing about us, some failure of character, and he looks at us and he says, I know you're like that, and you can't deny it when he says it, right? Of course I am. I am that thing. You found me, Satan. I'm there. And then he says, you need to feel worse. You haven't felt bad enough yet. You need to really, really devolve into this like spineless state. You really need to feel the agony of your sin. I mean, Jesus had to go through all this for you, your spouse, your family, whatever it might be that's been damaged. He lies. It's all lies. And Jesus says it. He just claims it. Let me go on. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion and he's going around seeking whom he may devour. That's the words of St. Peter. And what he's talking about is Satan actually has this nasty, vitriolic desire to make sure your life doesn't succeed. Sometimes we think that that actually has to do with sin. And I'm convinced that the majority of sins don't have Satan involved. This is just me talking, okay? Not the Bible. But I think the reason we sin is because we want the wrong stuff. And I don't need Satan's help in that. I honestly sometimes just want the wrong stuff. What I think Satan does a great job of, of doing is co-opting that sin and deceiving us around it and helping us to handle it in all the wrong ways. So you know what's in your heart and you know what's probably in mine because we're all kind of the same. And what we want is usually somehow mixed with some bad stuff and Satan twists that. And he lies to us and he starts to eat us alive and he devours us internally. It leads to that death we were talking about earlier. One last passage. This is from Revelation 12.10. It tells us that, and this is the old words of the King James Version, but I like it particularly. It says, it, there's, it gives him a name. It says he's actually the accuser of the brethren. Now, if you know anything about Parker Ford Church, if you're new here, we're historically and still connected to a denomination called the Church of the Brethren. That means Satan has a really big problem just with our denomination, and he doesn't really have that big an issue with Baptists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Charismatic. Yeah, that's not really true, right? Brothers just means Christians. You, you were all going along for it. You're asleep. It's a little warm in here, and you were starting to drift off. So I'm going to call you back. But it says he's the accuser. That means he wants to kind of pin you down. He wants to make you feel like what you are is wrong. He wants to put you up in front of the judges of this world and say, look at that guy. What an idiot. This is Satan's role. This is what Satan does. And if you've been living under a cloud of guilt and shame, if you've got some secret sin, or maybe you don't, and you just feel shame ambiguously. It's just kind of floating over your life like one of those clouds over the Snoopy character. And Snoopy, you remember the peanuts and they have those different things? It's like that. Some people walk around with a cloud of guilt and they just exude it. I feel bad about me. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so good. It's good. Life's great. No, you're not. You feel shame. You're just miserable. And the reason you're miserable is because you've been lied to. And the reason you're lied to is because you haven't listened to your Father in heaven who loves you and wants something different. Now, don't get me wrong. Sin is sin, and God is the judge. It, we don't take him off the throne in any of this. What we do is we say he's an empowering judge who helps us to change, not an unempowering judge who asks us to fall apart all the time. And we easily live lives of deeply introverted pain over this subject. I want to move on, and in the time remaining for us, I just want to give us a few steps about how to fight shame. Because I'm so convinced, everybody I know sins. There's just nobody who doesn't. That's just normal. I, I, 
Tim's not here, I'll even tell you he sins. I've been there when he sinned. I think we've actually corporately sinned together. We went to college together. I don't want to tell you the stories. He'd be mad, but see me afterwards. Uh, you know, we, we all sin. We all have to find a way to figure out how to deal with sin. And God has prescribed a path for getting out of sin. But the problem is we often believe all the wrong things about it. So here's the first step. Be in a place of grace. Believe the truth about God that he is a kind father and not merely an austere judge. I've told you before, but often I think my version of God when I was a kid was that he was walking around with a magnifying glass and he was watching me go to school and he was watching me go to church and he saw every bad thing I did. And when I stepped out of bounds, it was like he was waiting to smush me with his thumb. That's the way I grew up. I had this thought, and it was shame. It was built on this idea that God was this judge, and he is the judge, but he's also the father. And I think he looked at me, and he understood all the frailties, the failures, the difficulties, and he wanted to pull me out of that stuff. A lot of it he did. We easily have the wrong thought about God. I want to give you a few right thoughts. In 1 John 4, it tells us that God is love. You know, if you're really honest about yourself, you don't like certain people naturally. I'm not saying you don't like them, but you know that there are people who come into your presence and you go, oh my, I need a little bit of grace to deal with this. Do you have those people? Come on. If they're in this room, don't point at them. Um, You know, (laughs) somebody just pointed at their sibling. I'm I'm not telling you, but they're twins. Uh, Anyway, so God, God loves everybody, and he doesn't have that feeling. Let me tell you what that means. That God loves Iraqis and North Koreans as much as he loves Americans. That God loves the people in the planes that hit the World Trade Center, and he loves the people that were in the building before it hit. That God loved that little baby who died, and he loved Bathsheba's first husband who was murdered, and he loved King David. He loves you when you sin. He loves you when you don't. And he doesn't love you with this imprecise love. It's not an ambiguous distance. It's actually this very precise, I love you for who you are. In fact, he loves you in a way that knows who you are better than you do. And he's always trying to get us back to the place where we are becoming what he created us to be. He loves us for the true us. We mostly love kind of the false us's, the people we make ourselves into, the people we wish we were, the people we're lied to about. So this passage that tells us that God is love, it reminds us that this God, he never has that feeling of, oh, goodness, I don't want to talk to that kid again. Now, when we we show up at the throne of grace and we start talking, he's like, I love this kid. Man, he's a mess. Look at that. He's found a new and creative way to sin. That's really interesting. I can forgive that. I can love that. But you better repent of it, too, because you need to get right with me. That's what he talks like. So God is love. Second thing, the joy of the Lord is our strength. This comes from Nehemiah 8.10. We often have this thought that God cannot smile. But the joy of God is our strength. That doesn't say that you get the joy of God. That doesn't mean he infuses you with joy. It means that we have to be so in touch with God that we realize that he actually has a smile in his heart all the time. We sing praise to get ourselves to the place where we can be joyful because we struggle. He's actually joyful always. And his character is that of a father who looks at us and smiles. You know, one of the things I remember about my dad that is such a, my dad is the most joyful person I've ever met. 
He really is. He's just constantly happy. And he would punish us. We would do, my brother and I, we would do really interesting sins. Let's put it that way. And, and when we did, he would punish us, us. He would punish us. And he would punish us with a smile on his face. He wouldn't be mad. I remember him just having this joy about him. I'm like, Dad, are you liking this? Like, this isn't cool. We're going to spend all Saturday cleaning the backyard and picking up sticks in the woods behind our house. And you're going to think that's fun. He's like, well, life's fun. And you guys are pretty hilarious. Go pick up the sticks. He actually did that. Made us clean a whole forest full of trees once. Um, So God is joy. I mean, he is joyous in his character. Jesus is the prince of peace. Isaiah 9 tells us this. Peace and shame don't exist in the same time and in the same place. They cannot work together. I don't know if you know that, but if you're experiencing shame, you're not experiencing God's best for you because his peace is what he wishes for you. That doesn't mean he's just going to put it in there. What you've got to do is remove some of the things in the way. God's kindness leads us to repentance. You know, my thought of God when I was a kid tells me that I actually thought God was waiting for me to failure with kind of a gleeful expression of, I can't wait for that kid to blow it because I'm going to correct him. When I was a kid in my children's ministry, they talked about breaking the Ten Commandments. You know you can't break the Ten Commandments. After David got done trashing the Seventh and Sixth Commandments, specifically adultery and murder, you know, he didn't break any of those commandments. They still exist today, right? What he actually did was broke his life on the commandments. Where I grew up in Michigan was right along Lake Michigan, and in the, the Muskegon Harbor was this harbor that had these pierheads that went out straight into the lake a little ways. And then there were these alternate pierheads that came out on an angle. And every year in Michigan this happens. This might be hyperbolic, might be a little overstatement, but almost every year somebody goes out after dark, gets drunk on their boat. There's a lot of people having fun. And they go out from those first pierheads and they turn either south or they turn north. And they hit the full throttle on their boat. These boats are fiberglass and some of them are 30, 40, 50 feet long. And they go fast. I mean, some of the boats that were around, pretty quick boats. And they hit the gas, and they go flying at this pier that they forget is there because it's dark and they can't see it anyway. And guess what what happens? The, The pier does not break. That fiberglass boat runs itself up on the rocks of the pier, and it's got gigantic holes on it, and they call that thing totaled. It's done forever. And invariably, the people don't get hurt. It's really funny. They, don't get, it's, they built the pier in such a way it doesn't damage folks. But it actually damages the boats, and they're broken, and the pier sits there unscathed, undamaged. You know, the Ten Commandments in our life, they're there. The rules of God are there, because, not because we break them. They're there because if we don't follow them, they break us. And when God's kindness comes along and he sees us, he says, I want to keep you from breaking your life down in these ways. I want to keep you from the consequences of sin. I want to keep you from the damage, the hurt, the pain, the loss. I want to bless you. He doesn't have this wonderful expression like, wow, he's going to sin again. I'm going to get to call him on it. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that pulls us back after the moments of failure. We'll keep going. Be precise. When God does call you to repent, write it down or speak it out in three sentences or less. Now, this sounds like legalism, right? I mean, three sentences or less. Have you ever confessed of a sin? Honestly, like just had to tell the truth about yourself. Had some gigantic moment where you failed, or maybe it was a gigantic moment in your heart, but nobody else thought it was. You know, it's easy to say it in paragraphs. You know, my dad... He treated me badly when I was a kid, so I'm given to this character flaw, and so now I'm compensating for it by possibly doing this thing that's actually sin. 
I've heard that confession. I think I've said that confession. We actually like to put things in paragraph that would be better stated in simple sentences. We like to let ourselves off the hook or add things onto it. So we find our sin and we say, okay, you know what, that's sin, but we notice that we have other character flaws that God's not actually speaking to us about. And we're going to believe all of the lies that come with this stuff and we're going to realize that we're just an absolute mess. And we're going to pile it onto God and we're going to write a 50-page manifesto. And we're going to tell God, listen, we're, mess, we're a mess and we don't know if we ever can come back from this, but we hope that you can bring us back because somehow you're divine and mysteriously great and all that. When all God was looking for was, no, you did this wrong. Write it down. Say you did this wrong. Just simply share it with the person who's next to you. Tell them to pray for you and move on. Say it in three sentences or less. I actually attended a revival service a few years ago, which, I, I mean, these are not a thing you do very often, but it was a great revival service. And they told us at the end, there's like, if the spirit moves and you want to talk, get up there and grab a microphone and tell everybody your sin, but never tell everybody in more than three sentences because you'll actually end up lying. And I've thought about that forever. And you know, it's true. We add gigantic words onto simple truths. And the simple truth is we're failures. We can say it very quickly and without a lot of pride. So the enemy lives in ambiguity. Too many words mean too many ways out. Being precise allows conviction to change us rather than shame to paralyze us. God works to transform us with precise change, but the enemy shames us into believing that more than God's specific directions are necessary. He'd love to tell you that this repentance isn't enough that you need more, that you need to roll in the mud a while, that you need to put ashes on your head and think you're a woeful sinner forever. You need to get up in front of the church and own it in front of everybody else. Maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe what God wants is just a precise, specific moment where we proportion our sin and hand it to him and say, God, we're sorry. And then we go to the people we've damaged and we say, we're sorry to you as well. And then we walk on. And then we move on. Be precise when you're called to repent. Be intentional. Develop a plan for change with specific goals and times. One of the worst things that's, that happens when we fail is that we keep failing. We actually don't develop a plan out of it. We don't trust God's grace to work in us in any powerful way. And so we end up kind of reliving the same failures over and over again. And we stop believing with every cycle a little more that God can actually work in our lives and change us. Every time we repeat, we actually get worse in the shame of our lives. So this thought tells us that we should first write it down, second, share it with somebody else, third, try it. You know, when I was uh, in high school, I came to Christ and I thought, I'm going to read the Bible. And I put out there that I'm going to read the Bible all the way through four times. And I think it was something like 25 or 35 chapters I had to read every day. I made that commitment in January, and guess how long I lasted? It didn't actually work. Right? I mean, you know, a week in, I was realizing I can't read 25 chapters in a day and retain anything. I just don't have a brain that can do that. So I had to quit. And by February, I wasn't reading the Bible at all. And I was just going on my happy, sinful way. You know, what we need is about a seven-day period to kind of go, you know, let's try this out. What are the disciplines that will help us to change? What are the accountability structures? What do we need to change about our daily lives? Let's do it for a week and see if it works. After that, let's do it for three weeks because... That's how long it takes to change a habit. This isn't in the Bible. This is just common sense knowledge. It's something psychologists tell us. But if you want to change your lifestyle, do something for three weeks, and you'll actually probably have done, started something that you will continue doing for a significant amount of time. So absolutely create a plan. Here's the last thing. 
be forgiven. You know, for some of us, and I told you about Nicky Gumbel coming to Christ and his tough step was believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And his second tough step was believing that Satan actually existed. But for some of us, the toughest thing is to believe that God can handle what we've done wrong in our lives. We're tied down in these social situations, these relationships, people who are looking at us and they feel like we've damaged them. And so we feel the guilt and the shame and the hurt and it keeps repeating over and over and over again. And the thought that God is going to forgive us might be the most intentional faith step that we ever have to take in our lives. The step between you and walking with God might be actually the faith that believes that he can forgive and that he wants to work daily that he wants to work to clean this stuff up and that he wants to remove it from our lives. Karl Barth was the best theologian. You might not agree with him. You might not know who he is. But I went to seminary and I liked Karl Barth. And people, he was a real controversial character, but he wrote more and he had some of the biggest thoughts in the 1900s. He died many decades ago. But as he was dying, people gathered around his bed and they asked him a single question. They said, Karl Barth, you were the brilliant guy of your age. You were this person who informed theology and the study of God's word, tell us what is the most profound thing that you've ever thought about God. And as he's dying, his quivering voice, it's quaking, and people can barely hear him. They're, they're leaning in to listen. And he says, the best thought, the most profound thought I've ever had, he says, Jesus loves me. Satan would love to take away one of those words. He'd love to take Jesus out of your life and put you out of the presence of God. He'd love to do that by somehow taking the love out of your life, making you think that God doesn't particularly love you, where you're sitting, that God doesn't love the me, that when we look at ourselves, we've grown so distrustful of ourselves that we don't like us to the point that we can't imagine that God actually likes us. Either we doubt Jesus, or we doubt his love, or we doubt ourselves. We doubt the redemption. And Karl Barth said, you know, the most amazing thing after writing libraries worth of books is just this simple thought that Jesus loves me where I am right now in the state I'm in. Don't give in to shame. Don't allow God who wants to work and transform and alter your existence. Don't allow his words to be added on to by this enemy who's going to lie to you and deceive you into thinking you are not all that you should be. God wants to set you free. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. It's the enemy's work to deceive you, to accuse you, to tear you down and hold you down as God tries to lift you up. Join me in prayer.